Hello and welcome to Feedstuff Swine Healthline, brought to you by Farmgate. I'm Andy Vance. Today I'm talking with Dr. Daniel Linares, Associate Professor and Director of Graduate Education at Iowa State University. We're talking about the current state of porcine respiratory and reproductive syndrome virus, PERS, across the U.S. swine herd. Dr. Linares' research focuses on swine population health, including strategies to prevent, detect, or manage infectious diseases in field conditions. Today, he'll talk about the latest PERS data compiled from primary veterinary diagnostic laboratories across the U.S. and offer some insights on how you can use that data in your practice or system. Professor, to start off our conversation today, I'd like to just get a broad overview. You're you're an expert in uh, PERS and are pretty well steeped in what's happening out there in the countryside. So what's the current state of PERS in the U.S. at this point in time? Hi, Andy. Thanks for having us on this on this podcast. Just an overall picture of PERS virus we see based on data from the Swine Disease Reporting System, right, which briefly aggregates data from five swine-centric VDLs, including the ones from states of uh, Iowa, Minnesota, South Dakota, Kansas, and, and Ohio. What we see is uh, increased submissions for PERS PCR testing over, over the years and pretty much an increase year, year over year. We also see increasing trends of some lineages, including 144 and 142. Also a lot of activity of 174 that kind of reemerged in uh, 2014 and still causes problems in, uh, today. We also see uh, increased diversity of uh, genetic diversity of PERS virus and virulence of strains. So the 174 we see today is very different than the ones from uh, 10 years ago, and it's different from the ones in 2014. And same thing for every other strain, excluding the ones from uh, vaccine-like virus, because of course those come come out of the bottle uh, pretty st- in a standard form, so they tend to be more uh, conserved right over the years and, and regions, but for the wild types, they are really different. They keep changing on us. And there is also, when we say that, for example, today at, at the overall level, the lineage 1C variant, the 144, is the most frequently detected in the in the U.S. overall, right? But there are striking differences between states. When you see reports saying the 144 is on the rise, yeah, that's that's true for the for the most part. Uh, at this moment, as we speak, it's true for Iowa, Minnesota, South Dakota. But if you go to other states um, like North Carolina, Ohio, for example, they are dealing with uh, more one one uh, one seven four are uh, way way more frequent. So there are very uh, different patterns of uh, wild type detection over time and and uh, and over space. There will likely be, I, I guess, also product production systems, right? Uh, some some production systems being affected more with one virus than, than the other ones within uh, each state. You know, thinking about the trends in this virus and uh, all of the things that you just shared in terms of the big picture, cases are increasing. Why do you, why do you think that is the case? That's a good question, and I, I wish I had a straightforward answer. We can share some thoughts so we, we, from since, we say, 2017, 18. Uh, there was the development of processing fluids, and then that was followed by family oral fluids, and now more recently, tongue tips, uh, fluid sampling. So 
people are sampling with more uh, population-based uh, approaches, which which is more practical, it's cheaper, and it's more sensitive at the herd level because it's uh, now instead of uh, bleeding a few pigs, you're, you are sampling hundreds of piglets, right? If not thousands sometimes, depending on how the level of our aggregation of samples. So that the diagnostics have improved, the frequency of submissions to the lab has also improved, perhaps because of this cheap and and uh, 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 convenient and more sensitive way of sampling, right? The population-based samplings. And, and the virus continues to evolve. The, it continues to evolve uh, over time, over space. So people are realizing that and now looking looking more uh, closely to what's going on in their own systems. And PERS virus, it still causes a, a, a huge economic impact in the in the U.S. swine industries. It is perhaps the most economically significant pathogen affecting the the industry. It causes direct economic impact as well as it's no surprise that PERS makes it easier for other pathogens to to cause comorbidities, right? So things like mycoplasma, flu, PCV2, they all ride uh, behind behind PERS, causing problems. And, and of course, veterinarians, producers know that. So I think going forward, they're going to continue to monitor. And that may explain part of what we see, the number of submissions going up. People want to understand closely what's going on so that they can apply precision disease control methods. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, great, great point. Because of, I'm thinking about this uh, in terms of what the data tells us and uh, all these insights that you're offering. And so as you peel it apart, in addition to the overall increase in cases, the data also tells us that PERS activity is higher in that grow to finish space than it is in our sow farms. So thinking about what that means, what are the implications of, of those differences for the industry overall? Yeah, good good point. Uh, the, it is true that we see here not only just a side comment, not only for PERS, but also for flu, for PED, for uh, PCV and others, we see in the lab data, the positivity rate is higher in growth finish than it is from uh, South, farm, South Farm cases including thousand suckling pigs and the spikes right the, the it, it's for all those diseases detection uh, of of those pathogens it's really seasonal right it goes goes down summer goes up uh, cold months and that happens year after year for a number of reasons but anyways it goes up first in grow finish than it and it does in south farms and we think that it's it's because Grow finish are just uh, they're they're amplifiers, right? They're amplifying whatever uh, maybe low prevalence in the south farm, but once uh, pigs are weaned and then perhaps commingled, and then uh, grow finish, you know there, there are many more lungs going on, and uh, we we know also that in grow finish, it's it's not that the, the, there is no biosecurity, but the biosecurity in general overall. Uh, in general, biosecurity and growth finish is is substandard compared to the South Farm, based on what we see and hear today. And uh, so, for example, we have a lot of shared labors. We have shared supply, shared equipment, shared debt uh, uh, removal. So, we're with those shared uh, resources. We are also sharing sharing pathogens. So, I think that's what's going on. And in response. Uh, I was happy happy to see that the Swine Health Information Center 
wrote a one million dollar call for proposals to seek initiatives to improve that uh, overall growth finish biosecurity and biocontainment right because we talk a lot about biosecurity but as i said there's a lot of shared resources and epidemiological connections between sites, there is the need for biocontainment as we speak. Yeah, there some exciting opportunities there uh, to see what what comes from that call for proposals. Professor, I you have been out on the forefront of this and talking uh, to producers, veterinarians. You presented a lot of conferences, uh, speaking a lot of webinars, podcasts like this. So I know you get questions, <laughs> lots of questions, I'm guessing, given the importance of this topic from both producers and veterinarians. So what are some of the common questions you get from those two groups, the the producers and the veterinarians, about this this study and the the, the research underway? Yeah, and those will be the in our wish list, right? Right, the wish list in, in terms of wish we had the better knowledge and sometimes better products. And one of one things is, for example, how to manage the relatively high virulence strains. Do the current products and procedures and biosecurity and and immunologic solutions do they do they work for all the emerging viruses? That that's a question and. Based on what we know, the vaccines that we are out there, and if you talk with the with, with the manufacturers, they I, I don't think anybody claims that they have a silver bullet vaccine, but it is true that study after study, whether there is an experimental a study under specific uh, uh, confined conditions or field studies, the vaccines they they continue to uh, demonstrate that they reduce significantly reduce the clinical consequences and shedding of the of the wild type virus but still it's an area that that the industry needs to keep keep evolving we also get uh, questions on practices what are what are the best uh, best practices to implement in either breeding herds or grow finish to mitigate the clinical consequences right what goes with in the in the package and so we've we've uh that's uh, some some of the questions that keeps keeps us busy here as we speak. And as we ramp up our time together, I'm hoping maybe you can kind of synthesize. We've had a great discussion here, covered a lot of ground. What do you think is the most important thing you want veterinarians to take away from the the data on on PERS that we've been discussing? A key takeaway, specifically for veterinarians listening to our conversation. Yeah, so I'm pretty excited with the with the monitoring and surveillance systems that we have in place today, all the way from the farm to projects like uh, this uh, 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 collaborative effort from diagnostic labs to share their data. That allows producers to understand what's going up, what's going down, what's what's trending in terms of the most prevalent genotypes, uh, per genotypes in terms of lineages and RFLP. The program reports both. And uh, what's going on in South Farms, what's going on in Grow Finish, the program reports both. And what, what are the regional differences, right? Uh, uh, how, how is how is Iowa, how is Minnesota, how is South Dakota, North Carolina, you name the state, and then there will be up-to-date, uh, daily, updated daily information on what's going on in that area so people could at least understand the risk and see, see what's going on. If they see uh, um, odd genotype in their system, they can always benchmark, am I the only one in this region? 
seeing this, uh, am I alone, am I not? So they they at least know, uh, get a regional perspective on what's going on. And it's uh, like we said, it's the virus is always changing. So bringing the need for ongoing monitoring, ongoing monitoring again at the farm and at the regional level, right? To keep up to date information on what's uh, making informed decision to to manage. And uh, as we said too uh, earlier, PERS is not alone. PERS is infecting macrophages and opening the door for this, the the immunologic system's door for other pathogens. So we gotta keep keep looking and. What's going on? We also track bacterial uh, incidence of of uh, bacterial diagnosis, and it's always good to keep track uh, again regionally and nationally what's 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 trending up, so that people rise their rise their guards. And uh, finally, we talked about the growth finish, right? The growth finish population as as a subpopulation that really uh, potentiates and kind of. Bring the person infection, the pressure of infection up and and high. So importance for us to keep thinking about South Farm biosecurity as we have, but also get some set of eyes and what can we do in, in terms of those epidemiological connections. Connections. I don't think they're gonna. It's not that we're gonna quit those and erase all of those epic connections, those shared resources that we talked about. But what are the biosecurity layers? Uh, that we can implement to make shared dead removal, shared uh, uh, people, shared uh, equipment between the sites, something more manageable and make it hard for the virus and continue to make it harder going forward for the virus to jump from one site to the next, from one production phase to, to the next. So I think we're going to keep talking about biosecurity, biocontainment and interventions to be uh, to do good for the farm, but to also do to good for the region and be be a good neighbor. That was Dr. Daniel Linares, an associate professor and director of graduate education at Iowa State University's Veterinary Diagnostic and Production Animal Department. You can find more information about today's topic as well as disease monitoring information and other tools at field.epi.org. This is the first in a four-part podcast series about Swine Respiratory Disease Complex brought to you by FarmGate Animal Health. Call your FarmGate representative or visit farmgate.com to learn about their broad portfolio of options to support your veterinary protocols. Join us next week on Feedstuff Swine Healthline to hear from Dr. Maria Clavio, Research Assistant Professor at Iowa State and Health Assurance Veterinarian at Pig Improvement Company, PIC. She'll share her latest research regarding endemic bacteria in pork production and how to manage the costly impacts. Until next time, I'm Andy Vance for Feedstuffs.